Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hey, everybody. It's great to be back with you all. I'm happy to be back with Drs. Andrew Wright and Nick Citrullo for our first Clinical Challenge podcast in which we will be discussing an unfortunately common pathology, which is confusing to many surgical trainees and staff alike, the management of post-inguinal hernia repair groin pain. Dr. Citrullo, you want to get us started and set the stage for our listeners and why they should care about post-inguinal hernia repair groin pain? Sure. Um, Inguinal hernia repair is definitely one of the most common operations performed uh, by general surgeons, especially in the United States. This can be done open, laparoscopic, or robotic. We'll try to use the term minimally invasive or open uh, to describe the different options for repair. 20% of patients will have some form of pain after their hernia repair three to 12 months after the operation, and an additional 10% of those people uh, will have pain such that it will actually limit their normal daily activities. Only a small percentage of these patients, about 2%, go on to require surgical intervention or any other pre- uh, procedural intervention, uh, this frequency of the chronic pain combined with the massive numbers, almost a million inguinal hernia repairs uh, performed annually in the United States with 20 million word worldwide, makes it imperative that any general surgeon who's performing these procedures and these repairs uh, at least knows how to start the evaluation and management of these post-op complications. So the um... Uh, first step in thinking about chronic pain after inguinal hernia repair is realizing that pain is really a symptom and not a, a diagnosis. And there are lots of different etiologies of chronic groin pain uh, that have different treatment algorithms. I think it's also important to realize that the preponderance of groin pain in the general population is actually quite high. And not all pain in the groin, even after somebody's had a hernia repair, is actually due to, to the repair itself. Um, So you have to be very thoughtful about approaching these patients and really work through a very good history and physical, uh, as well as review of imaging to start to sort out what might be the potential etiology of their pain. Very broadly speaking, um, when you talk about specifically about groin pain due to hernia repair, there are sort of two different phenotypes, and uh, those phenotypes really help guide the direction of your evaluation and management. Uh, So the first phenotype is a a neuropathic pain. Um, That is typically due to nerve entrapment or injury. It's typically in a dermatomal distribution, often has the classic neuropathic uh, characteristics, uh, sharp pain with uh, burning, uh, sometimes numbness, sometimes changes in touch and temperature sensation. Uh, You'll see that most commonly in the ilioinguinal, iliohypogastric, or genitofemoral nerve distributions. Um, The second broad category is what we call nociceptive pain, which is uh, not from nerve entrapment, but is really uh, tissue injury or inflammatory response. That's a little bit more dull and heterogeneous. It's not always quite as well defined. Um, That can be caused by anything from postoperative inflammation, uh, mesh-related issues uh, like a meshoma where the mesh is wadded up into a ball. Uh, issues like ischemic uh, orchitis or uh, venous compromise to the the cord, uh, osteitis, um, recurrence, 
uh, or again, some of the non-hernia related causes of groin pain, like, uh, like the athletic related groin injuries. Thanks, Dr. Wright. With that, let's dive into our first case. Uh, our first patient is a 45-year-old man who had an open right-sided inguinal hernia repair using Lichtenstein technique six months ago and went to his surgeon for his post-op appointment a few months ago, uh, who counseled him that his pain was within the normal scope for uh, post-operative pain and recommended continued observation and treatment with rest ice and treatment with NSAIDs, etc. cetera. Uh, he says that his persistent right-sided groin pain is now limiting his ability to play with his children, and he's presenting to our clinic for a second opinion. Uh, before diving into the details, Dr. Citrullo, what is the time cutoff where you classify this patient as having chronic pain that requires further workup uh, versus expected postoperative pain that can be observed with a reasonable expectation of it resolving on its own? Again, kind of a hard thing to figure out when looking at just the literature. Um, <clears throat> the International Association for the Study of Pain defines any chronic pain as something that is present for three months past the initial insult. Others will more term a six-month period uh, before describing as post-inguinal uh, hernia repair pain. Um, this is due to the fact that they think it takes more time for the human body to get used to the foreign body being present uh, and for the mesh kind of to resolve and kind of settle itself down. Um, I treat post-operative pain personally as uh, six months. If someone comes to me with six months of pain, that has continued uh, either since the time of surgery or has worsened since the date of surgery uh, that has not responded to uh, simple measures like ice, uh, NSAIDs, physical therapy, et cetera. Uh, that's when I start to worry about these that's chronic pain patients. Uh, but Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you think on this? Yeah, so I, I usually use that three-month definition to call something chronic pain. Um, but I don't do the more aggressive interventions uh, till later in that time course, because I've certainly seen people whose pain improves uh, with additional time. Uh, so I'll, we'll talk a little bit later, but I'll do all of the non-operative, non-interventional pain management strategies early. Um, but then I, I would wait on some of the more aggressive things, uh, probably till at least six months and, and maybe even longer. So regardless of which definition you personally subscribe to, the patient in this case pain is certainly abnormal uh, and warrants further evaluation. Uh, Dr. Wright, I've seen a handful of these patients with you in clinic, and I know you have a really thorough history and physical exam uh, that you go through with them. Would you just mind walking our listeners through your process and uh, what you go through in your head when you're getting a fresh patient like this in clinic? Yeah, I, I typically reserve a 45-minute to an hour-long clinic visit for these patients. It really takes a lot of time to get into the details that you need. Um, before I walk in to see the patient, I would try to uh, re actually review their preoperative clinic notes from uh, uh, before their hernia repair. Uh, a lot of times, the symptoms that they were having before surgery is a clue. Um, I've seen a number of patients that actually had pain before surgery, uh, they had surgery, the pain didn't get better, but then the pain gets ascribed to the hernia repair instead of whatever was going on in the first place. So, so I start uh, there with that initial preoperative clinic notes. Um, I then want to review the operative note itself. Uh, really critically important to get that, to know what was done at the initial operation, if the surgeon uh, found anything unusual, uh, which nerves were identified, if they were identified, uh, what kind of mesh was used, uh, where the mesh was placed. Uh, and, and how the mesh was secured. And that gives you a sense of uh, 
what the potential etiologies might be and also what you might run into if you do, in fact, have to proceed down the road to reoperative surgery. Um, I also take a look at any imaging that they might have had before they see us, uh, before they walk in. Um, so then when I actually go in and, and see the patient, um, some of my my questions, um, I do want to find out about their, their history and the time course, um, what their pain was like before surgery. I ask them about the distribution and the character of the pain, uh, what kind of uh, exacerbating and relieving factors, uh, specifically which movements might trigger the pain. Um, and I also want to ask about genitourinary symptoms, uh, groin versus testicular pain, disejaculation, et cetera. Um, so it's a really quite a thorough history. Uh, and then um, uh, physical exam. Uh, Dr. Strullo, uh is going to talk a little bit about our groin mapping. Um, but, but even before I get to that, I think a good pain exam isn't just a a straightforward hernia exam. You also have to do a good musculoskeletal exam, including looking at things like hip uh, uh, pain and stiffness, uh, gait. Um, uh, so it's, it's a really thorough uh, physical exam. When we're doing our exam, we're really trying to determine whether anything's in a dermatomal distribution or not. Is it more a mashoma sensation where they can feel the problem? In our group, and I learned this from Dr. Wright, so I'm giving him all the credit here, we will mark and take pictures in our EMR uh, of pain mapping. We usually will start by laying the patient's supine on the exam table uh, with no clothes below the waist. We will start at the level of the umbilicus and go laterally to the affected side, about to the level of the ASIS. We will move one centimeter laterally and one centimeter inferiorly as we continue down. And we like to mark pain with a plus, no pain with a zero and a, or a minus, and numbness with either the zero or the minus, whichever you do per your routine. Documenting the numbness is very helpful because some of these people will have a nerve injury distal that will cause numbness at certain points. But being able to tell whether these patients are numb, pain, have pain in that area, or have no pain and everything feels normal is a really, really good way to kind of start to look for your dermatomal distribution. And it can give you a sense of potentially which nerve is your main target. It's a little hard to convey what I just described in this audio format. So we are gonna include a video presented by Dr. David Chen, who's one of the world renowned experts in groin pain, especially post-operative groin pain. They, he presented at Sages in 2017. And this video very closely mimics what we decide to, or how we perform our pain mapping. And just one addition to the pain mapping, um, I will often actually extend my pain mapping beyond the borders of the dermatome. Uh, because if patients have pain, for example, uh, above the ASIS or lateral to the ASIS, you can almost guarantee that that's not a neuropathic issue because that's well outside of that, that dermatomal region. Thanks, Dr. Wright. So... This patient's history and physical are notable for a constant shooting pain, which is disproportionately aggravated by light, uh, light touch, things like putting on his clothes, and says it's been present since almost immediately after his operation, pointing towards a neuropathic etiology. Uh, on the detailed exam that Dr. Citrullo described, uh, his pain and hyperesthesia are located just superior and lateral to his pubis in an ilioinguinal distribution on the affected side. So what's next, Dr. Wright? Uh, how do you decide uh, when to move forward with the neurectomy? Is there any further imaging or workup uh, that you would need to do 
first. Now, so management of chronic pain, even when you have a good history and physical for neuropathic pain, now it's really complex. And surgery is actually my last resort because you can always make things worse. Uh, so the first uh, thing I'll do besides my history and physical is actually imaging. A lot of patients will come in with some uh, variety of imaging. Uh, I found ultrasound is actually often uh, complicated by both false negatives and false positives in the post-operative setting. Uh, the mesh itself or any entrapped fat or retained fat in the inguinal canal can really confound a lot of radiologists. So I don't find ultrasound very helpful. Uh, my preferred imaging is actually a dynamic MRI, and that gives you uh, a great structural uh, view. It also shows you other musculoskeletal issues that might be contributing to the pain. Um, I've had some patients where insurance won't cover an MRI, and we'll have to get a CT instead for cross-sectional imaging, but I, I don't think that's quite as good. Um, I, I do think it's important to know how to read these yourself. Um, I found that the, the radiologists often aren't very familiar with the details of inguinal hernia anatomy and surgical technique, and often postoperative scarring or residual fat can be called a hernia by radiology, uh, and conversely, sometimes radiology will miss a subtle recurrence or a, or a mesh problem, so you really have to look at them yourself. Um, Assuming that there's no uh, mesh issues, and no recurrence, uh, nothing on the imaging that really uh, points to a, a treatment algorithm, um, and you're really convinced that this is a neuropathic pain, I still try all of the non-operative treatment strategies first. So um, I typically recommend that they work either with their primary care physician or pain medicine specialist. Uh, trying things like the gabapentins, uh, tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, there's actually really interesting research that cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness-based therapy can be more effective than, than opioids or gabapentin. Um, I'll recommend acupuncture, physical therapy, uh, massage therapy, basically anything that can help improve physical function. Because really here, our goal is not normalization. Our goal is improved function. And if you can get there without doing a neurectomy, I think that's going to be, be better. Um, if, if a patient's not getting the improvement that they want with all of those uh, non-operative uh, strategies, um, my next step is actually to try a nerve block. Um, I used to do these myself, but I found actually some of our interventional radial, our interventional pain specialists are better at this than I am. So I now refer these folks to interventional pain. Uh, for a diagnostic nerve block. And I warn the patient that they're not going to get long-term relief from this, but it's really a trial. So if there's a good ultrasound-guided nerve block and they get good but temporary relief from that, then I think they're much more likely to benefit from further nerve-directed therapy. Uh, on the other hand, if they really don't get any improvement with a good ultrasound-guided nerve block, I don't think a neurectomy is likely to help them. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. This is Patrick Georgeoff, and I want to take a minute to recognize the sponsor for this episode, Enzo Rings. Now, silicone rings have become very popular in the last couple of years. You see them everywhere. And one place you see them an awful lot is at the hospital. Now, as surgeons, we are constantly scrubbing in and out of the OR and other procedures. Now, the ring comes on, the ring goes off, maybe you hang it from your necklace or your scrubs. Regardless, the life of a surgeon makes wearing a pricey metal ring to work absolutely less than ideal. 
And while silicone rings are great, not all silicone rings are created equal. And that's why we recommend Enzo rings. Enzo rings are redefining silicone rings and have quickly become our favorite. Enzo rings offers a ton of stylish collections. The Rise collection is trusted by medical professionals, and we love it. The Rise collection is engineered with anti-ring avulsion technology. And the rings are easy to keep clean thanks to Enzo's patented Touch antimicrobial technology. I love my Enzo ring. It looks great, and it's super comfortable. We also recommend checking out their Elements collection. The rings are infused with precious metals like pearl and volcanic ash, something only Enzo rings can do with their patented technology. Trust us, you're going to love Enzo rings. And we have a special offer for our listeners. 10% off your first purchase of any collection. Just go to enzorings.com forward slash BTK today and use promo code BTK. That's promo code BTK at E-N-S-O rings.com forward slash BTK. Now, back to our episode. Perfect. So let's say this patient had an excellent response to that nerve block that you referred him for. Uh, but something like 18 or 24 hours after the block, his plane gradually returned. And now he's back in your office and it's just as bad as it was uh, uh, before. Uh, Dr. Satrula, what are sort of the key points that we need to talk to these patients about uh, when we counsel them about the risks and benefits of surgery and uh, so that we're all on the same page going in? Just a long, thorough discussion with the patient about the risk and benefits is the numbers one through eight things of importance telling patients that the nerves are not always in the expected location, that sometimes there can be cross innervation between the nerves, that there's different success rates with different approaches, whether we're doing an open or a retroperitoneal approach to get to the nerve. I try to tell them that if you had a good response to the nerve block, there could be up to a 70 to 80% chance of significant improvement or even elimination of the pain, but over 30% of people will have continued bothersome pain. And depending on what you were going in for, if you go in for a neurectomy and notice that there's a problem with the mesh or the mesh is not looking right, or there's a mesh plug or something like that, we oftentimes are removing mesh at the same time during these surgeries, which can then lead to further hernia recurrence uh, or scarring in the area as it's often a more difficult procedure. Got it. And Dr. Ray, Dr. Citrullo just alluded to the different approaches, open versus MIS. Uh, some of that is, of course, dictated by surgeon experience, but assuming we're the MIS team and capable of either, how do you decide uh, which approach to select? Yeah, and, and I would actually add between open and MIS, there's also interventional. So you can talk about nerve ablation, either cryo or RF ablation. Um, again, that's something I would I have a conversation with our pain specialist about. Um, when it comes to a surgical neurectomy, I think there's a lot of debate. And if you get us sitting around, um, you know, at, at a, at a meeting like AHS or SAGES, this, these are the kinds of things that we talk with each other about as hernia specialists. Um, so one approach is to try to get the nerves proximal to the site of injury. So if you assume they had an inguinal hernia repair and you want to get catch the nerves proximal to that, you're trying to get the nerves in the retroperitoneum. And in that setting, you're going to, uh, I think, be better off doing an MIS approach, uh, catching the nerves uh, significantly proximal, essentially when they come out of the back and before they go into the groin. Um, on the other hand, 
um, some people argue that you shouldn't get the nerves that proximally because those are going to give you more side effects and more potential downstream effects due to denervation issues. And so some people uh, argue for a more distal approach where you go and try to find the site of injury. Um, so for example, if they've had an open repair, you go and open and you find the site of injury and, and take the nerve there. Um, in my hands, uh, personally, what I feel is that if I uh, don't think that there's anything wrong with the mesh or the hernia repair, there's no evidence of meshoma or recurrence or any of that nociceptive pain that we talked about earlier, and it's truly pure neuropathic. I'll tend to do a minimally invasive retroperitoneal approach. Um, when you do that, you then have to make the decision, are you going to do a selective neurectomy? So for example, only the ilioinguinal nerve, uh, or are you going to do a triple neurectomy? Uh, again, there's a lot of discussion and debate there. Um, some people recommend only doing a selective neurectomy to, again, minimize any potential downstream complications of, of the neurectomy. Uh, on the other hand, there's significant crosstalk between the nerves of the groin. Um, and also, often there's variance in the nerve anatomy. Uh, it's, it's almost like a brachial plexus sometimes with multiple uh, branching uh, and, and cross innervation between the nerves. Um, so generally speaking, if I'm going to go through the risks of a retroperitoneal neurectomy, personally, I typically take all three. Um, on the other hand, if I think that there's something wrong with the mesh, I think there's a recurrence, there's a meshoma, they have a significant component of nociceptive pain, or sometimes if they have a significant component of testicular pain that I think there might be a, an ischemic uh, component uh, to their pain, then I'll do an anterior approach, remove the old mesh and do a neurectomy from, from the groin incision. So I, I think it's important to have both of those approaches in your tool set. Uh, so last thing before we move on to our next case, uh, the common patterns of iatrogenic nerve injury after an inguinal hernia repair are commonly tested on our in-service training exams and come up frequently uh, in the operating room. So most of our listeners probably know that the nerves most commonly injured in, in open inguinal hernia repair are the ilioinguinal, iliohypogastric, and the genital branch of the genital femoral, uh, all of which are addressed in the traditional triple neurectomy. Uh, the most commonly injured nerve following a laparoscopic or minimally invasive hernia repair, however, is the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, which is obviously not one of the nerves uh, uh, listed there. Dr. Wright, can you briefly contrast how you'd approach a patient with neuropathic pain of the lateral proximal thigh after a laparoscopic tap or tap? Yeah, these these folks can be really hard to treat. Um, it, they present with essentially neuralgia parasthetica, uh, lateral femoral cutaneous nerve distribution pain. Um, I treat them uh, initially the same way any of these groin pain patients, uh, again, trying all of the non-operative uh, approaches first, um, uh, including trying for, for example, uh, ablation or injections. Um, I have had a handful of patients where I've gone in and uh, uh, been able to do a, a minimally invasive lateral femoral cutaneous neurectomy. Um, that can be a little bit harder to find that nerve, uh, but I basically will track the lateral edge of the mesh until I find it. For the sake of time, we're going to move on to our next case, who is a 58-year-old man who had an open Lichtenstein left-sided inguinal hernia repair several years ago, who is coming to us with groin pain for the last several years, which has gradually caused him to have to avoid exercise. 
we perform the same detailed history and physical exam that uh, Drs. Wright and Citrullo outlined for our last case. And the patient says he has dull pain that's distinct from his preoperative symptoms, which started about six months following the repair, and that it's sometimes present at rest, but is particularly aggravated by movement, particularly with sitting and crossing his legs. His detailed physical exam demonstrates a focal but non-dermatomal pattern of pain at the inferior medial aspect of his incision. There's no evidence of recurrence on exam, but it is limited by uh, his obese body habitus. When we look at this patient in this story, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is either a hernia recurrence or a meshoma. A meshoma is actually a technical definition where the mesh is bald or bunched up, um, which leads to local nerve irritation and potentially nerve entrapment, but even without nerve entrapment can cause significant local pain. A mesh plug often causes a similar syndrome as a meshoma and creates a, what a poorly placed flat mesh will turn into as a meshoma. In fact, this patient's uh, pain is nociceptive with no dermatomal component, certainly rules against nerve involvement, but again, these patients can present in unique ways. Got it. So let's say this patient came to clinic with a CT scan that had been done before he was referred to us, and the impression reads, no evidence of recurrence and nonspecific postoperative changes. Does that rule out a meshoma? Are we back to the drawing board? Well, that's the most common read you're going to get back, especially if you don't know the radiologist and don't work closely with your radiologist. Most of them have little experience with this type of pathology, especially in meshoma. And unless you particularly order in the comment section of your scans that that's what you're looking for, you'll often hear a nonspecific postoperative change. Ultrasound, as Dr. Wright had mentioned before, is particularly um, unreliable. Uh, I don't mind CT as much, but do prefer MRI. One of the things that this brings up is the importance of surgeons looking at our own scans and all of our own images in any patient, but especially in someone who may have a more difficult physical exam. We're going to include another uh, link to a JAMA surgery commentary by Dr. Parviz Amid uh, at the end of the show, which has some great pictures of meshomas on the different imaging modalities. Uh, but for this patient, since we think that there is some pathology that we can operate on to make him feel better, um, and that the, the, this uh, preoperative predictive value of issues is high, um, and my exam didn't really tell me one way or the other, uh, having the CT scan read by a radiologist who you have look at a lot of your images uh, can certainly be helpful uh, in determining whether it's a true meshoma or if it's truly just postoperative changes. If that doesn't give us the conclusive answer we want, you can always order MRI. As Dr. Wright has kind of hammered home during this whole talk, surgery is final and can create bigger problems. So you really want to know every piece of possible information you have before you're going in there. Perfect. So let's say in coordination with our radiology colleagues, we order and review an MRI, which uh, to our read and theirs uh, confirms our suspicion of a meshoma. Uh, what's next, Dr. Wright? How do you talk about this with the patient and uh, how do you proceed? I think as Dr. Citrula mentioned, just like with neurectomy, uh, a really important part of this is, is patient expectations and the informed consent process. Um, you can make things worse. Uh, you can create a recurrence where there was none. Uh, so a patient really has to know what they're getting into and has to really buy into the idea of, of having a repair or sorry, having a, a mesh excision. Um, 
these folks, I typically don't necessarily need to send a pain medicine because it's more of a, a physical uh, manifestation of a mesh problem. Um, so in these patients, most commonly what I'm going to do is a mesh excision. Uh, so if it was a, a mesh that was placed open, I'll typically do an open mesh excision. If it was done MIS, I'll typically do an MIS mesh uh, excision. Um, the uh, challenges in this, uh, I think, are actually some technical issues with getting the mesh out safely. Uh, there's always a risk to injury to the cord. Uh, and I have actually had one patient that developed ischemic orchitis and lost their testicles as a result of this operation. Um, and then I think the other big thing is how you reconstruct the groin after you remove the mesh. Um, you can go back and forth and debate, should you do a primary repair? Or should you do a new mesh repair? Um, in my hands, that's a part of the discussion with the patient. Um, I would prefer to do a new mesh repair. Um, however, a lot of these patients are essentially afraid of mesh after their initial surgery and refuse a mesh repair. So you have to be very comfortable and facile, for example, with open tissue-based repairs so that you have those options to, uh, to talk about with the patient. Now that we've gone through the cases of post-inguinal hernia repair groin pain that require intervention by a surgeon, uh, let's do some quick hits describing the other common causes of pain. Uh, I'll give a brief description, and either you or Dr. Wright can just jump in and give the diagnosis of the next step of management really quick. Uh, first up is a 57-year-old man with severe throbbing pain in his testicle three days after hernia repair. That sounds most likely to me with some type of testicle problem. Uh, which would most commonly be ischemic orchitis due to venous and pampiniform plexus disruption. I would get an ultrasound to, to uh, identify this and uh, reassure the patient that most likely this can resolve. Uh, but if pain continues, then uh, orchiectomy by our urology colleagues may be necessary. I think the ultrasound is important if the patient presents acutely and you get an emergent ultrasound that shows no flow to the testicle, I think you actually have to take them back to the operating room uh, because you can actually then preserve the testicle if, if you release, for example, a, a piece of mesh that's too tight around the cord. Um, on the other hand, if you have good flow to the testicle and there's no sign of uh, a concern for a, uh, a testicle loss, then I think you can do the conservative management. Great. Next case is a 37-year-old female with severe carrying pain localized to her pubis with thigh adduction when returning to her normal activities following repair. Yeah, um, this is kind of common, especially in an open repair when people take a stitch uh, too deep and hit the periosteum of the pubic tubercle. Uh, it's essentially osteitis and uh, usually self-limited. Um, and I, again, would recommend sort of conservative treatment Sometimes we'll talk about things like steroid injections or other things, although I wouldn't do that at the two-week post-operative point. Uh, in rare cases, um, in patients who have uh, persistent pain like that, they actually may need a, a re-exploration. Uh, and sometimes that can be uh, mesh removal or, or sometimes even involving, uh, excuse me, uh, involving orthopedic surgery for assistance. And that brings us to our last section here before wrapping up, which is prevention of this post-inguinal uh, hernia repair pain in the first place. Uh, Dr. Wright, is there any data to help us out here? Uh, I think the first thing is just to have respect. It, it's 
for the anatomy. It's a challenging operation. And I think often inguinal hernia repair is considered like an intern operation or a low level operation, but actually the anatomy of the groin is incredibly complex and the, the nerve anatomy is often variant. Uh, so understanding that anatomy um, on an open technique, certainly understanding and recognizing the nerves. So I, I will actually uh, make sure that we can identify the nerves so that we don't injure them. Um, there is actually some uh, reasonably good evidence that there's less chronic pain after MIS repair than after open repair. Uh, in, in my mind, the biggest reason, in fact, to do an MIS inguinal hernia repair isn't uh, the short-term benefits of, uh, of rapid recovery. It's actually the long-term benefits of uh, less chronic pain. Um, so there have been some Cochrane reviews and a number of RCTs that, that have shown uh, that uh, decrease in chronic pain with an MIS approach. Um, there is some controversy about uh, fixation, and uh, some folks will try, for example, non-suture fixation, either with self-adhering mesh or with fibrin glue. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. There was the timely trial in 2014, for example, that showed that fibrin mesh or sorry, fibrin sealant reduced chronic pain. Um, so there's lots of things that you can try. I, I think oftentimes, um, uh, the nerve injury or the nerve irritation isn't from the mesh. It's actually from the suturing. So that's the advantage of those non-suture techniques. And speaking of suture, suture can create all sorts of problems. Um, hopefully most people today, whether doing uh, open repairs, MIS repairs, if they're using suture, they're using absorbable suture. A great study from the Journal of American College of Surgeons in 2014 uh, compared absorbable versus permanent sutures, uh, 100 patients in each group, identifying that there was uh, less chronic pain in the absorbable suture versus the non-absorbable suture. I have certainly eliminated non-absorbable suture from any of my uh, hernia repairs, longer or slower absorbable suture versus a classic Vicryl or Polysorb um, uh, will probably allow for better healing and repair overall. Uh, so I tend to use something that dissolves in about 12 weeks. Moving on from suture as other strategies to try to avoid injury, doing a prophylactic neurectomy during your index inguinal hernia repair um, is safe, can certainly reduce your chances of long-term chronic pain, but people complain about numbness. And I do not think in this day and age, routine ligation or taking of any of the nerves during open repair should be done. Uh, I think it should be done on a selective basis if you think it's already been injured or if you think you cannot protect it. The other thing with the, has become more and more popular is leaving nerves in their investing fascia. I remember as a resident dissecting out the nerve, wrap protecting it by putting a hemostat behind it and hiding that nerve by basically putting it outside of our Wheatlander. I never do that anymore. I keep the mesh in its investing fascia because that will cause less injuries. One other thing yeah, we can talk about. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Wright. Oh, no, I was absolutely going to agree with that. I was taught the same way to skeletonize and preserve to protect the nerve. But I think by skeletonizing, you actually put it at increased risk. So identify it, but then leave it alone. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, there's some data that a prophylactic uh, injection uh, of uh, marking into the perineural sheath actually reduces long-term chronic pain. So something about uh, abrogating the, the pain cascade before it even gets started can be helpful. 
Great, Dr. Wright. And then the last thing I was going to say is the discussion of the size and weight of your mesh. Um, you always have to balance pain issues with recurrence. Lightweight mesh is more likely to recur. Um, but when you compare older studies or newer studies looking at lightweight versus heavyweight mesh, the feeling of the foreign body and the reduction, there was a reduction in pain in the lightweight versus the heavyweight group. Uh, I think sticking with a medium weight mesh is the way to go. Uh, I think lightweight has too high a recurrence rate, but there is data that shows that you will have less pain with lightweight mesh. Yeah, you know that pendulum swings back and forth um, between light and heavyweight mesh, and there's some newer data that suggests that maybe heavyweight mesh is better. And, um, I, I agree with you, though. I just stick with the midweight mesh. I, I'm trying to find the best of both worlds. Thank you both. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. So let's uh, just hit a couple of quick take-home points before we sign off. First is that post-inguinal hernia repair pain is very common and generally falls into two buckets, neuropathic and nociceptive. Isolated neuropathic pain management should generally involve a procedural pain specialist to assist with management and determine who will be a good candidate for a neurectomy. Second, nociceptive etiologies of pain are numerous. It's important that we're able to distinguish those that require surgical intervention, like a meshoma, from those that can be managed expectantly to avoid needless and prolonged patient suffering. Finally, like anything else in medicine, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Inguinal hernia repair is viewed by many as a straightforward intern-level case. The reality is that groin neuroanatomy is challenging and variable, and that our understanding of how to best avoid postoperative pain is evolving, and so too should the approach uh, we take when we're performing these repairs. On behalf of the University of Washington team and the minimally invasive behind the knife team, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.